Check, check, do what? Sure, yeah. Check one, two, three, four. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L. Only Curtis. Good evening, Curtis. How are you? I'm good. It's so good to see you. <laughs> All right. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to tonight's holiday weekend gathering of Salt and Light. So um, as we do every week when we begin, um, I just want us to, to take a moment and pause. Everyone's coming in with different uh, excitements and highs and uh, worries and fears and lows and this kind of stuff. Um, and so I want us to start tonight uh, by just being invited into the remembrance that we fit in a unique moment in history, but we are in a really long line of people that are created by God, for God, um, that God provides for, that God cares for, that God designed for a specific purpose. Uh, the psalmist tells us that we are uh, beautifully and wonderfully made and that God knew each of us before he was born. And so I just want us to, to to, to take a moment as we start and just be reminded um, that we just fit as, as one tiny moment uh, in a long history of people created by God for God. So um, I'll read the non-underlined parts, and you can join me in the underlined parts as we kind of call each other to this uh, gathering and this form of worship tonight. So thank you, our God of ages, past, present, and future, that each of us exists in a long line of your created glory. Let's say together... We praise you that, like all of creation, we exist primarily for you and only by you, designed for perfect relationship and dependence in you. And while every human in all creation turned from you, we praise you for pursuing us, for providing a way back, and for a promise of perfect relationship one day again. We praise you that, like Adam and Eve, you invite us into your work, co-laboring with you for your glory among creation. And while both we and this world exist in a broken state, we praise you for your reconciliation. We praise you that like Israel under King David, you promise us good eternal king who reigns. We thank you that Jesus is a power greater than any other and that he is also our brother and friend. And while each of us gives ourselves up to other powers, as Israel did and even King David did, we praise you for displaying your power and love every day and in a thousand unique ways. We praise you that as Mordecai encouraged Esther, we exist for such a time as this in the exact places and with the exact people you created us to interact with. And while none of us uses every moment of every day perfectly, we praise you for redeeming our time. We praise you that like every human on earth who has been, who is, and who will be, you create us in your image to reflect you to the world you put us in by the power of your spirit. And while that image shines from us only imperfectly, we praise you for your perfection which covers us all. We praise you that we can gather together in this moment, moment in time with others who are pursuing you to remember and lament our broken state, to encourage each other to remember truth, and to worship you in word, spirit, and truth. We pray that your presence will fill this gathering in each of us, drawing us to you, to each other, and to our purpose. 
With this in mind, we thank you again, and we praise you, our God of ages past, present, and future, that each of us exists in a long line of your created glory. By your spirit, would this gathering be an echo of Eden, a foretaste of eternity, and a reminder for the present of who you are, of who we are, and of your abiding love. Let's say together, amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 here in a little bit, so if you want to pull up apps or open Bibles, go for that. Um, anybody started any new books this year? Starting like Goodreads Reading Challenge, and you already feel behind? A couple of them? Anyone finished a book yet this year? Nice, well done. Yeah, good for you. Some of you are like, yeah, I'm well-accomplished way more than anybody else in the room has, so good for you. We're going to talk about pride today. Um, so... <laughs> Uh, no, I picked up a book called The Second Mountain. Anyone read The Second Mountain by New York Times uh, columnist David Brooks? It's, been, it's one of those books that's been on my shelf. You may have a reading pile that you get new books, and you're like, oh, surely uh, month by month this book pile will decrease, mine increases. And so this is one that's been in this pile for a lot of years now, and I picked it up uh, and started reading it. And frankly, it's not anything like what I thought it was going to be. So should have read the back on that. Um, but it is, it is in part about... Vocation. So, going to go with God led us to that. God led me to that uh, in part for today. And 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 there's this helpful image uh, to kind of lead us right into uh, today's conversation. And so, again, it's by one of the more successful New York Times columnists, a guy named David Brooks. It's not a religious book. It's not a religion book. Uh, but the book, in part, flows out of David Brooks's own conversion to trust Jesus as a savior. Um, and so from page one, he describes what he calls second mountain people. Um, I was hoping it was a hiking book. It is not a hiking book. So um, I'm just kidding. Um, but he describes people who just, as he says it, radiate a deep joy. They, they just have and carry with them a sense of serenity and, and a settled resolve, and they just make you feel cherished and known. Like that's that's a good kind of person to to try and be. So, uh, here is what he says about first and second mountain folks. It's going to be up on the screen, I believe. He says, "I often find that these people, those who radiate joy, make you feel known. All this, I find that their life has uh, what I think of as a two mountain shape. They got out of school, began their career, started a family, and identified the mountain that they thought they were meant to climb. I'm going to be a cop, a doctor, an entrepreneur, what have you. On the first mountain." And just start to picture yourself in this. Do you resonate with any of this? On the first mountain, we all have to perform certain life tasks, establish an identity, separate from parents, cultivate our talents, build a secure ego, and try to make a mark in the world. We have a tendency to think, I am what the world says I am. Then he continues, the goal on that first mountain are the normal goals that our culture endorses, to be a success, to be well thought of, to be invited into the right social circles and to experience personal happiness. It's the normal stuff, nice home, nice family, nice vacations, good food, good friends, and so on. Does that, that resonate with anyone? Anyone experience thoughts like that through your life? Then something happens, Brooks continues. Some people get to the top of the first mountain, taste success, and find it unsatisfying. Is this all there is, they wonder? The sense that there must be a deeper joy, the sense is that there must be a deeper journey they can take. 
And at this point, people realize, oh, that first mountain wasn't my mountain at all. There's another bigger mountain out there that is my mountain. The second mountain is not the opposite of the first mountain. To climb it doesn't mean rejecting the first mountain. It's the journey after it. It's the more generous and satisfying phase or journey of life. And this is how he ends kind of this part of his introduction. He says, here's the crucial way to tell whether you are on the first or second mountain. Where is your ultimate appeal? To self or to something outside of self? And like everything in me just wants us just to sit and marinate on that for, for a little bit and be like, thanks, David Brooks, for our sermon today. Um, we're halfway through, if you weren't here last week, we're kind of halfway through this little two-week conversation on this idea of vocation to start the year. Um, so what is vocation? We said last week it's more than a job, it's more than a career. Vocation is, is a calling. Uh, we said last week that vocation is, is about our identity. It's about our core. It's about our priority, not priorities. If you weren't here last week, we said you can only actually have one priority. What comes first in your life? We said last week also that God is our right priority and that your primary identity, primary calling, primary vocation is as a son or daughter of the Lord our God. You were created for relationships with God, with yourself, with people, with the rest of creation. That, that, that is who humans have been. That is who you are and have been since Genesis 1 and 2. But in Genesis 3, sin ruined that. And now all of those relationships are broken. Now, and, and again, I know we know this, we find identity and hope outside of God's design. Now we're, we're tempted to pursue other callings and vocations. We're tempted to let the world around us tell us what we should be. We let other people and other things define our value and worth and joy. Now there are many things, but God, that take our priorities, that we call priorities. And then we closed last week by saying that in Christ there is good news and there is hope for those of us kind of trapped, if I can call us to David Brooks's words, if we're kind of trapped in that first mountain kind of life, if we're in the life of reputation and external and, and doing and, and not being and, and doing what we think the world tells us to do in this kind of stuff, there, there's hope. And that is that in Christ, God has reconciled all brokenness and all relationships. And in Christ, God invites us into a right identity, and to remember our first vocation. That was really fast. Does that make sense? If you weren't here last week especially, or if you were, anything I forgot that was especially impacting that would feed today's part? Great. We're all on the same page. Um, then one final note from last week's kind of first half of this conversation. Last week, we said that a right understanding of vocation shapes our everyday lives. Let me say that again. The first part matters. Our primary vocation, our primary calling matters because it shapes our everyday lives. It overflows out of us into every other thing we do. We said last week that who we are feeds into what we do. So whatever your true priority is, again, not priorities, whatever your single true priority is, that will shape your view of every other task, every other relationship, 
every moment at your school or job. And so what we're talking about is a second calling, a second vocation. We're going to summarize this second calling, second vocation as a station in life. You know that term? What's a station in life? Talk to me. What's your station in life? What is a station in life? Status. Status, yeah. What else? Kind of sounds like military, yeah. Yeah, and we're actually going to pick up on kind of assignment language today. Yeah, where are you stationed? Yeah. Any other thoughts? Phase of life, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, station in life, just, just for the sake of today at least, we're just going to kind of think of it as kind of the exact situation you find yourself in today. And so that involves phase of life. That involves the number of years you've lived. That involves the, 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 the moment that we're in. That involves uh, the, the, the titles you have, the job you have, the, the school you go to. Kids, this is for you today as well. Uh, it involves the specific relationships you have. Kind of if you, if you thought of the things around you, that, that is your station. That's where you are. That, that's where you're put. You can't be anywhere else in this moment. Maybe tomorrow you can be, but, but in this moment, you have a station of life, and you know what it is just simply by looking around you. So I want you to keep that in mind as we think about this today. Because if a theme from last week was you are called to God, then today's theme is that we are also called for God. We're called to God and we're called for God. We read from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 last week and and ended in 2 Corinthians 5, and we saw our our identity and we saw our primary calling. And so again, I'm going to say this a few times just because we can't move to the second half of the conversation as if it's separate from the first half. Your number one priority, your truest identity The core truth of your being for every human, whether every human believes it or not, is that you are God's. For every Christian, whether you believe it or not, your truest identity, your number one priority, your core truth of your being is that you are in Christ. That's the title that surpasses all others. But we're going to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. We're going to close again in 2 Corinthians 5 today because they also show us something else. God designed us to be with him. He designed us for perfect relationships. And God invites us to live out that primary identity, to display that primary calling and vocation. God invites us to to live those things out in the midst of our everyday lives. Because again, our first identity overflows into our second identity. Excuse me, our first vocations overflow into our second vocations. There are roles that you play in life, and guess what? They're not just happenstance or arbitrary. Where did they come from? They came from God, the one who can and does assign each of us to the places he wants us for the exact number of moments he wants us there and with the exact people he wants around us. So just, just as we saw our first vocation all the way back in Genesis 1, we also see our second vocation. 
So if you weren't here last week, here's what we did. We're going to do the exact same thing today. Uh, we're going to read from Genesis 1 and 2. I read last week. I'm on a different voice. So Laura Winslow is going to come up and read some selections from Genesis 1 and 2. And I just want to invite the rest of us uh, to pay attention to calling and role and work statements in this text. Uh, what does God tell us is our second calling, our second vocation? What does God design us to do? What, what are the postures and what are our stations in life in which our first vocation overflows? So this is from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die." Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not, a, a found, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Adam said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Give, let's give Laura a hand. There's oh. a lot of reading. I know, I know. You love being put on the spot. I know it. Thank you so much for reading. 
All right, so in summary, last week we, we read these verses and asked, okay, what does God say about who we are? In, in this week's half of the conversation, what are some things that you notice that God says that we do? So what are our second callings? What did God design us to do, our posture? What are the stations in life? So kids as well, as, as Miss Laura read, did y'all hear anything that God said, hey, humans, do this or don't do this? Grown-ups, welcome to feed this conversation too, but what does God call us to do? Yes, ma'am. Don't eat the apples from the tree of good and evil? Yeah, or whatever fruit. We'll call them apples today though, right? Yeah, so don't eat the fruit. God said, obey me, right? And, and so it's worth noting, like God created us to obey him. One of the things that he called us to do because of who we are is to trust him and to obey him and to realize that his ways are better. Great starting point. What else did God call us to do? Multiply. Multiply. Yes. Have dominion. Have dominion. Yeah, and we said this last week, that word is actually a, a picture of cultivation. And so when we think of dominion today, we often go to like domineering. And so I know I said this last week, but it's just worth being reminded, like what God called us to do is cultivate his creation, to care for it and help it thrive. Like God, God lets us do that. That's really cool. What else? What else does God call us to do or tell us to do or not do? Yeah, to not be alone. Yeah, the, the one thing that was not good in Eden before Eve was that man was alone. It was not good that he was alone. It was only very good once he was in community. He named things. Yeah, it had a role to play. There was some, some responsibility. What else? Say it again. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We said last week that God created us in his image. And, and so some of the what, what do we do, ideally, is shine forth that image to project God, to reflect God to the world around us. Anything else? One more? He said work the garden. Yeah, work the garden. So work is not evil, just to be clear. Work is not a result of sin, this kind of stuff. There was already work. There was also rest probably half of us trend toward overwork, half toward overrest. Both are good. Both existed before sin entered creation. And some of that, again, is assignment language, station of life language, name the animals, work the garden. Also stop, rest. I rested, you can rest. Here's the point. God designed us for doing things. God designed us to reflect certain things. God designed us for relationships and also purpose. God designed us to be with him and also to exist for him. God designed us to bear his image in our everyday lives and situations and relationships in the mundane, even boring, simple, seemingly happenstance aspects of learning and working, and playing, and eating, and grocery shopping, and mowing, and living. Does that make sense? That's what we saw in, in, in Eden. Adam and Eve reflected God for just like 45 seconds of their lives <laughs> as they 
cultivated and helped creation thrive, as they, they took some of God's delegated responsibility and stewarded it in, in, in naming the animals. And, and in the moments that we have to trust, they did obey God before they instead listened to the serpent's voice. It was in their work, in their rest, in their relating to each other. That's where the image of God shined forth. In Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and in your life, whenever you were created, and as we said earlier from Psalm 139, before you were created in your mother's womb, God gave you a first calling and vocation in that you were called to God And God gives us second callings and vocations in which we live out our first vocation. He gives us a station in life in which we reflect his image, in which we trust and obey him, in which we steward his creation well and help it thrive. Or not, because it's a daily battle for each of us. So, so, So the question for today if you're tracking with me, if you're following me, is why do you live where you live? Why are you at the specific workplace or school you're in? Why did you join that specific and exact hobby or social club? What are the family members that God has put around you? Who are the friendships that God has invited you into? Those are our stations in life. Why are we there? They're secondary vocations. They're callings from God in which we reflect our first and primary calling. You're a son and daughter of God our King. I was in a group one time several years ago, uh, and we were looking at uh, the, the, the chapter in Acts that was Paul's conversion. Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus. Um, and what he says, if, if you don't know the story, is, is Jesus appears, blinding light, Um, and says, hey, Paul, you're going to be blind. You're going to go to this street called Straight, which is basically Straight Street. We're on Terrell Avenue, kind of. You're going to Terrell, you're going to Straight Street. Um, You'll meet a man there, um, and he'll take, he'll he'll tell you what to do next. Um, And for the record, this is not like a, a missional missionary text, but one of the people in the group said, man, I wish God would be that clear with me where he wants me to go for the sake of his mission. And there's like general, you know, the right response to something like a bold kind of impassioned statement is everybody kind of like, yeah, no, nah, absolutely. That'd be great if God was that clear. Except for one young woman goes, well, hasn't God already been that clear with you? It's like, oh, that's not the, that's not the politically correct response. You're supposed to nod and agree. Um, and she goes, hasn't God been that clear with you? He said, well, what do you mean? And she goes, well, where do you live? And he named a street, I don't know, Main Street. Well, why do you live there? Well, because rent is such that blah, blah, blah. Um, and she goes, but, but didn't we just say that God is good and he's in control of all the aspects of our lives. And as she played it out, she kind of walked it back into like, well, you're there because God put you there. And that was kind of the point she was getting at. And I think that's a point that, that many of us don't associate as we look around and kind of go like, oh, well, this happened and also God exists over here. Oh, I met this person, but, but kind of his control is something I think of when I read the Bible every now and then kind of stuff. And we, we disassociate these two things that are intrinsically interwoven into the fabric of the way God created us and the way that God loves and leads us. Wherever you live, whatever you do, whoever you know, 
you're there for God. If you believe that God is good and, and, and is on some level in control, and if you believe that God is trustworthy and worth obeying, unlike Adam and Eve when they ate the apple or the fig or whatever your least favorite fruit is, if you believe that your first calling and vocation is true, that you're called to God, then you have a purpose. You are sent. You are assigned to your station. You're called to God and you're called for God. For me, if I were to answer that question, why do I live where I live? Um, I, this won't surprise you if you've known me for more than a, a, a couple of days. Uh, after college, I wanted to move to Colorado. Still do, most days, um, especially in the summer. Um, I applied to grad school in Colorado. I got accepted to grad school. Um, I did not get any financial aid from that grad school. Um, I had a really hard time finding a place to live. Meanwhile, I had also, as like a backup, applied to the school in Dallas for grad school. I was in Waco at the time, um, as most godly people did at some point in their lives live in Waco. Um, just kidding. Backup school, Dallas Seminary, uh, got a fair bit of financial aid got offered a job to help start this thing called a church plant, which I'd never heard of in 2004. Um, I had a free place to live in Fort Worth, and it happened to be closer to this girl that I really liked who was still at Baylor. And so on paper, that's why I landed in Fort Worth. Better financial... It was her. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> It was. It was that girl. It's getting pretty serious. <laughs> so on paper, like those are the reasons. That's why I landed in Fort Worth. Financial aid, place to live, near the girl that I wanted to marry. But if we zoom out and have a perspective that is bigger than the things that I can see... If we zoom out and have a perspective that there is things going on, there are things going on all around us all the time that are bigger and more purposeful, then through the lens of calling and vocation, God moved me to Fort Worth for specific relationships, to play specific roles, to carry out some aspect of his specific mission and ministry in this specific place for the specific time that he keeps me here which looks like it'll probably be till we die or go to the nursing home. So like Adam and Eve, I was called to God and I was called for God to live out that primary identity in the place and in the roles where God sent me. Like Adam and Eve, I was called to display his image in just the real stuff of everyday life. And guess what? I'm not that special. It's not like Adam, Eve, and Ben, and the rest of y'all, just whatever. No, like the same exact thing is true for you. You exist in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace, in your hobby, in every relationship that you have, in every role that you play, whether it comes with a title or not, whether anyone else knows about it or not, in your family, among your friends, every specific place Every specific moment, every specific person that God sent you to is for a purpose. 
every seemingly coincidental or small or inconsequential element of your everyday life, y'all, that's an aspect of your calling. It's an aspect of your vocation. And so to go back to David Brooks, do we look at life around us through a first mountain lens or through a second mountain lens? Do we exist through a, a lens of self? This is what I think I should be. This is what I think I should accomplish. This is why I think I'm here. This is what the world around me says about me. Or the selfless, life-giving, self-giving lens that says there's something way bigger. Sin has marred our view of God. And again, we can say that objectively, but do we bring it into the stuff of our everyday lives and what we believe about the things around us? Brokenness has marred our relationships with God and with people and with the world around us. And we've lost sight of our number one priority. Have we not? On some moment so far this year, some moment today, we not lost sight of our number one priority? It's so easy, so easy to forget our truest identity and our one sense of calling that God implanted in each of us. And, and now we think we're just here. We're just here to live. We're just here to work. We're just here to play. We're just here to eat. We're just here to learn. We're just here, could be anywhere. Maybe I'm just here until God moves me somewhere else, but in case he moves me somewhere else, I don't want to go too deep here in this job, in this school, in this neighborhood, in this city. And, and when we start to slip into that mindset, we live as if our relationship with God, which is our first calling, exists far away from our everyday roles and relationships, which are our second calling. We live as if our relationship with God, our first calling, exists far away from our relationship with others, our second calling. Or we reverse the two. And we live as if our everyday roles and relationships, our second calling, are our first priority, our top priority, our main reason for where we exist, who we know, the fact that we're here at this time. And then our relationship with God which should be our first calling, ends up looking like our second or our third or our 844th. Is that fair? So, so in a moment of honesty, just a quick gut check, how much do you consider God, your primary identity, your calling, your mission, your ministry, when you're at work or kids when you're at school or when you're wandering around your neighborhood talking to folks or when you're with your friends, whether they're followers of Jesus or not, how, how much do we consider that first calling when we're in the midst of our second callings? Because, and, and, and I want to be bold here, if there's anywhere at any moment or with anyone and we're not pursuing our first calling and vocation, our identity in Christ, the mission and ministry he gave us, then there's a moment where our priorities are somehow off. And what can that look like? It can look a ton of different ways. 
But if we've forgotten who we are, if we've forgotten our primary title, our primary identity, our primary definition, our primary role, I don't think I have to convince you of the logic. We may not like it, but I don't think I have to convince you of the logic to say, if we've forgotten those things, our, our priorities are off. Again, that's bold, but it's true. We said last week that before you're a spouse or a boss or a sibling or a parent or a widow or an employee or a child or a classmate or single or any other label, who you are is a child of God. But the reverse is also true. Because you're a child of God, that truth is the foundation of your role and of your relationships as a spouse and as a boss and as a sibling and as a parent and as a widow and as an employee and as a child and as a classmate and as single or any other label that you embody. To say it another way, there's no area of life, zero. There are no areas of life. There is no relationship. There's no role that exists without an invitation from God to live out in some way. And even if it's not outward, but maybe it's just an inward awareness and knowledge and remembrance. But there's no area of life that exists without an invitation from God to live out your first calling and vocation. There's no area of life, no relationship, no role that exists without God's invitation to display his image somehow. There's no area of life, no role that exists without an invitation from God to pursue his mission and carry out his ministry because that's what he called us to before sin entered the world. And in our lineage, we get to do what Adam and Eve did. So last week, in an email this week, we kind of just invited a little bit of reflection. And so whether you, you thought about it much this week at all, um, or whether you just see the, the thing that's going to be up on a screen here in just a sec. Um, I want us to, to chat for a few minutes, open conversation, not looking for one right answer here, but what would it look like to live out that primary identity, primary identity, primary calling, primary vocation in just different areas of life? What would it look like to live as if God was our one priority and as if God and his design did overflow into our stations of life? So here's a few areas. If others come up, happy to think about that as well. But what would it look like if our first calling and vocation showed up in our second calling, maybe in our response to sin? What would it look like for our f primary calling to, to show up in our marriage and singleness and parenting? What would it look like for our primary to calling, our identity in Christ to show up in interactions with coworkers or classmates? How would it impact truth or lies we tell ourselves? What would it look like as it relates to our pursuit with non-believers. Or for those of you who were in elementary class last year, kiddos, this is for you. Mr. Kendrick and Ms. Jen talked to you all about this. What are some ways that you can love and serve the world around us? And maybe for us grown-ups, that's a fair starting point as well because that's hard. <laughs> what do we think? What would it look like? True self, false self, true identity, false identity. What does it look like? to see our first vocation overflow into these or some other areas of life. What might it look like? I think we'd be forgiving people. We'd be forgiving people. Is that a, like a descriptor? We would be a forgiving people or we'd be active forgiving people? We, or both? Yeah. 
Okay. We would forgive those who trespass against us. To use Methodist talk. To use Methodist talk. That's, I think that's Jesus, not John Wesley. <laughs> so, yes, we would, we would forgive the trespasses of those who sinned against us. Yeah, and, and just, just pause there. That's really hard. Right? I can, yeah, no, none, the point, none of us can do it. But if we really actually embraced and lived perfectly, you know why we can't do it? Same reason Adam and Eve couldn't. We trust the other things. We give ourselves over. We, we follow in all of their footsteps, not just the Genesis 1 and 2. And by our power, we can't and we won't. If we fully lived in and trusted God more than them or remembered our forgiveness more than whatever they did against us, this kind of stuff, fully 100%, which we can't, I think it'd be a little bit easier at least. It's good. What else? What would it look like? I think I would trust the work of the Lord more in that other person. Hmm. I would trust the work of the Lord more in my kids and me not having to control how they respond. Yeah. I would Oof. trust the work of the Lord more in Josh. And I would, yeah, it would take me out of this controlling hmm. and allow the Lord to And freedom for me, too. Yeah. Yeah, it would take us just to, in case you didn't hear, she said that it would take us out of the seat of controlling. It would help you trust God's work in, in this case, kids, spouse, and take you out of the seat of having to be in control, which then offers great freedom. Luckily, you're the only person here who struggles with trying to control other people. And so we can pray that over you. I mean, who's not been there? With spouse, kid, some work scenario, some anything global event that you go, if I could just do this, I'd, <laughs> I'd solve it. But I love that you said the freedom that would come with that. To quote Jesus, not John Wesley again, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So what would it look like for us to embrace a free and light station assignment. What else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you'd be more contented with your station in life. Um, in fact, in 1 Corinthians, Paul even tells people, hey, if you're single, stay single. If you're married, stay married. Um, and of course, God, and we'll come to this in a minute, like God does change our stations in life occasionally. He shifts our assignment. Um, but there is that like, hey, this is where you are. Am I enough for you? No matter how good or bad your marriage is, everyone's a mix of both. No matter how good or bad singleness is, no matter how good or bad this phase of life is, am I enough? One more? I was thinking I'd likely respond with more grace, specifically with like uh, some work scenarios. I get a lot of emails mm-hmm. and they're defensive and I see things certain ways that make me feel probably just people on the other end dealing with their own things too. And yeah. not, you know, just kind of being more gracious to others and not assuming that I always have to give Yeah, yeah. <laughs> People don't come with their own agendas. They might not be out to get you, so you said you'd show more grace and less defensiveness. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, again, if we think of who we are in light of God, not our pleasing of them or their pleasing of us or whatever else, then, again, that, that primary identity drives our vertical relationship drives our horizontal relationship. Hmm. Yeah, shout out to book clubs. Trusting his timing. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. It goes back to that control thing on some level. Darn, darn control. That guy's driving like God's going to take care of him. Yeah. <laughs> that guy's driving like God's going to take care of him. Yeah. Gosh. I tuck that away whenever I'm free. Sure. Yeah. Is that what that, is that the hand symbol means? <laughs> You're driving like God's going to take care of you. <laughs> Just, I mean, just even in these few moments of pausing, what's, what's it like to consider this other side of life, right? Because everything we're talking about is, is real life. It's kids and spouses. It's work and clients and driving and phases and, and this kind of stuff. But, but what's it like to consider this other side that is equally coexisting, but just that we don't consider a lot? Anyone have any thoughts? For me, I'll say it's, it's more rare to pause and kind of think about this other lens. Anyone else? Any other thoughts? I just think there'd be a lot less guilt and strain in your mm. life. Because the assumption is that if I ignore Christ and all of these stations of my life, that I can fill that space with noise. Yeah. Assuming that I'll be in trouble and I'll have guilt. However, the reverse is typically true that if right. all of this is my failure as a parent, a husband, a father, a mother, whatever it might be, when you go to Jesus, he is gentle and lowly and can give you rest, and there is a release from those things, more freedom, as you said earlier. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't do that, you ignore it. It's like necessary. Yeah. Less guilt, less shame, more knownness. There's some of that in, in the closing verse of what Laura read. They were naked and unashamed. They were fully known by God. They were fully known by each other. They fully knew themselves. And what does sin immediately do in the next chapter, if you've read it? Drives us to guilt, shame, hiding, blame, broken relationships, defensiveness. Yeah, there's such freedom here. So, so here's what we can't do today is say, so here's the three-step plan. <laughs> there, there, are, there are literally a lot of ways that this can look as we start to kind of, kind of close our teaching time, our conversation time. And, and so our, my goal, our goal for these couple weeks was just to kind of be a reminder, maybe for some of us, a, a really needed reminder 
a reminder of some truth that we haven't thought of in months or years or longer. And just simply to breathe fresh air into you individually and to us as a community by reminding us and calling us home, calling us back to our number one priority. And, and then to give you the freedom and give you the spirit-filled permission to be creative and ask questions like those. What would it look like for me to see X situation, Y relationship, this person, that moment? What would it look like? And then just to pray and go, Spirit, what would you do in that kind of thing? Would you help me see this through the right lens of God, through my calling, through my vocation? And then, as we already said, God invites us to be content with our station in life. And also, at times, God invites us into new assignments and new stations in life. And so there's no science here. There's no calculation here. Rather, what, what the invitation is in this whole vocation, first calling, second calling, to, to God, for God conversation, what the invitation here is, is into mystery. It's an invitation into dependence and prayerfulness and communion with God and, and inviting other humans to speak into that as well. As you discern, God, is, is this my second calling? Is this my second vocation? And how can I bring my first vocation into that? And so I just want you to hear the heart of this is not, here's an empty duty. Here's more to do. Rather, the heart of this is to say, Jesus invites us to live fully in, into who God designed us to be. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus invites us to live fully into who God designed you to be? The primary reason God sent you to the people and place and times he sent you to is to reflect his image. That's the, the first purpose of humanity since Genesis 1. The primary invitation that you bring wherever you go and whoever you meet, you know what the primary invitation that you have for others is? Come home. That's the message God first extended to you through the life and death and resurrection and reign of Jesus. Because only of all of humanity, only Jesus never lived on David Brooks's first mountain. Only Jesus never pursued reputation or success or self. Only Jesus never defined, was defined, excuse me, only Jesus was never defined by what the world said he should be. Only Jesus, of all of humanity, always lived on this second mountain, a selfless, always living out for God and for others kind of life. Only Jesus always lived out of his primary identity and calling and vocation. And he proved that in a prayer he prayed on the Mount of Olives. Not my will done, God, but, but yours. Not my will be done. I exist for you. And then he proved that on the Mount of Calvary as he gave his life for you. But as we grow in Christ, as we are with him and become like him and do what he did, by the power of the Spirit, we too get to incrementally move past the world's view of our jobs and schools and relationships and station. And we too get to come back to the first calling and first vocation and then live that out wherever we are. Fair? I want to close with the same verse that we closed last week with. 
Um, 2 Corinthians 5 perfectly captures both sides of this. And so I want to read it and give us some chance to reflect on it and then invite you to the table. But here's what Paul tells those of us who believe in Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, there's the identity, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That's who we are. And also, in Christ, God was entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's what we do. You see both? Both callings and vocations? Who we are leads to what we do. God called you to God. God called you for God. We take with us the ministry and message of reconciliation into every role, every relationship, every moment God assigned us to. Because, and only because, we first said yes when God extended that same message of reconciliation to us as he's reconciling the world to himself through the work of Jesus. Amen? So we're going to leave this verse up there. And as we said last week, the table is, is open. Like, Jesus has invited you to this. In, in the broken body, reflected by the bread that's in front of you, he died for every other false, false vocation, false calling, false power, secondary identity, this kind of stuff, and says, no, there's a way home. And is shedding the blood, which is the juice or the wine in front of you, he's covered you and said, even as we, even as we continue to live out of our secondary callings, his view of us hasn't changed. And we're covered by his blood and covered by his righteousness. That's already true. That's what the table invitation is. So if you need to spend some time with Jesus, praying for help in believing that, go for it. But whenever you're ready, the invitation's there. Take the bread, dip in the juice and the wine. This is the body and blood of Jesus, broken and shed for you.